Okay, and welcome to uh, the Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today is Tom Patterson. Now, you're going to recall that Tom Patterson uh, was the writer of the November issue of MRH's uh, cover article, which was a Central Valley Bridge Kit Bash. Uh, you can see additional photos of Tom's Model Railroad at his website, and I'll give you the address www.c, like Charlie, W-R-E-R-A-I-L-R-O-A-D, C-W-R-E, railroad.blogspot.com. You'll see some uh, additional photos that you uh, didn't see in the uh, article, motive power, scenery, and so forth. So the the unique thing I uh, see that Tom represents here. He has been working on the same model railroad for about 20 years. Uh, that just blows me away. Being nomadic myself, and Tom's had the uh, good fortune to live in uh, his community community there in the uh, Cincinnati area for 20 years, uh, where my wife and I have never lived in any one place more than uh, seven years, I think, at any one stretch. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here. Okay. Now, tell me how you got into model railroading, uh, what those early influences are. Sure. Um, As I'm sure with many of us in the hobby, I got started with a Lionel train set in the uh, late 1960s. And uh, then in the mid to late 1970s, my stepfather built two HO scale railroads. And uh, that's really what picked my interest in model railroading. And in the late 70s, I began to buy the magazines and uh, buy a few kits here and there. And and that's really when I got started uh, into model railroading uh, as a full-time hobby. Okay. Now, and so you had a an early layout, and then I think you'd mentioned in uh, before we were recording, you had a couple moves that caused you to have to tear down those uh, railroads. Let's jump ahead to the point where you start what you've been working on for the last 20 years. Sure. Uh, tell me about the background, the influences, who out in the industry may have influence you and really lit that spark that results in this railroad we see today? Sure. There were a number of influences and uh, some of the uh, uh, the most prominent, uh, the most prominent probably is Alan McClelland and his series uh, on his railroad in the, in the late 1970s. That's really what got me interested in coal hauling railroading and uh, led me to the development of the Chesapeake Wheeling and Erie concept. Um, At the time, uh, it seemed easier to come up with a freelanced railroad than to actually try to model uh, a prototype simply because of the availability of product. If you recall back then, um, there was a very limited number of uh, diesel locomotives on the market uh, just a really limited amount of rolling stock. And if you wanted to accurately portray any of the prototypes, you were going to be forced to do a lot of kit bashing and uh, scratch building. So that's why I 
gravitated toward doing a, a freelance railroad, and uh, it really was the McClellan series that pushing the direction of coal railroad. Okay. And who else? Because you had mentioned a couple other of the uh, industry icons that impacted what you did and how you did it. Uh, there were a couple others. Eric Bruman and his Utah belt uh, had a big influence on uh, on the paint scheme for the railroad. Uh, he had some articles in the late 70s on his Utah belt, and I really, really liked the way those diesels looked. So uh, I developed a paint scheme that looked very much like his and uh, lettered a couple of diesels in Railroad Roman with the central belt logo on the side. And uh, at some point thought that I'd really like something a little more modern looking than that uh, and a little more eastern railroad looking than that. And so I developed the CWE Herald and the central belt moniker on the side um, based on the Norfolk and Western's paint scheme at the time. If you recall, they had the large NW letters and then Norfolk and Western to the right uh, on their freight cars. And uh, even the cabooses on the layout, the, the bright red color with the uh, road numbers on the cupolas, that is a, is a direct copy uh, from the Norfolk and Western at the time. Okay. All right. Now, in the home where you are now, just give us a, a uh, description uh, of the train room so, you know, we have a size context here in our minds. Sure. The room uh, is in the basement, and it's a little more than half of uh, the basement that we have in this home, and it's shaped in an L, and there's a 26 by 16 foot area approximately, uh, and then off to one side is a 9 by 10 foot area, and uh, it's it's a moderate size, and uh, it's provided me with uh, plenty to do over the years, and the concept for the section of railroad that I'm modeling is that it represents an area um, that goes roughly from Thomas, West Virginia, east to Petersburg, West Virginia. And it's a small portion of a line that actually runs from Erie, Pennsylvania, down to the west of Pittsburgh and into West Virginia and then on to uh, the Chesapeake Bay and the Hampton Roads area. Okay. And, you know, just as a side to the listeners, you know, Tom's locales and that of uh, mine have just paralleled. For a while, he lived in Dayton. I lived in Troy. I lived in Rocky River. For a while, he lived uh, next door uh, in, what was it? Uh, it was Lakewood and then Avon Lake. Yeah, right up there. And, you know, Cincinnati, I used to go to Cincinnati a lot as a kid on the George Washington. So... A lot of parallels here, and you mentioned uh, Eric uh, Bruman. He's the gentleman. Uh, he's out in St. Peter's, Missouri, I believe. I think so. Yes. Yeah, we lived in St. Peter's, uh, Missouri, when our kids were small, and I was in the railroad industry. So there's just all kinds of, you know, it's just like that movie, Six Degrees of Separation here. <laughs> so you've got the space. You've been influenced by. Alan McClellan, who's a Dayton guy, right? Correct, yes. And uh, the gentleman on St. Peter's, so you've got this concept. You're going to have a coal hauling route coming down through the, the heart there. Now, 
Did you tell me about how you designed it? Are you one of those guys who designs it start to finish down to every detail, or do you get so far and then go, all right, son, time to start building? Well, uh, it's a combination of, of both, I guess. The, when we moved into this house about 20 years ago, I had a section that I'd saved from a previous layout, and this section was uh, a, a large yard, and I wanted to reuse it. So I designed the railroad around utilizing that, that, that section that I had saved. If I had it to do all over again, um, I probably wouldn't go that route because it, it may have limited me in what I could accomplish in that room, but nevertheless, that's, that's what we have. And I drew up, you know, the plan for the layout, incorporating that yard and got almost all the way around to the end of the room before I, uh, <laughs> ran out of interest and decided I needed to start building and began construction. So, uh, because of that, I did end up making a few changes um, as I went along and uh, some other changes in terms of the track work at different places as well. Okay. Now, I know when I, you know, started uh, building even just display tables in the basement in uh, the St. Louis area just to hold the rolling stock because I belonged to a club at the time, I mean, my carpentry skills were non-existent. Uh did you, when you took off on building this second uh, layout, had you acquired carpentry skills and tools? Did you know your way around a hammer? Well, I did. Um, you know, I've, I've actually got two degrees. One is from the University of Cincinnati, and the other is from the School of Hard Knocks. Okay. Uh, when I was uh, <laughs> participating in some classes at the School of Hard Knocks, um, I worked construction, primarily residential construction, and I also... Uh, worked as a painter for a period of time, so uh, I had a reasonably good idea of, of how to frame things up and, and various construction techniques. Okay, and same here. It was my exposure uh, in building products and stuff when I was with Alcoa and working with contractors that allowed me to observe how to do it right and how to buy tools, and so, yeah, that's... Otherwise, you know, you end up with a disaster. Now, so how'd you build? What construction techniques do we have? Do we have dominoes here? Do we have L-girder? What'd you use? Uh, it's all very traditional uh, construction. It's uh, all L-girder bench work, and uh, I've then followed that up with half-inch plywood and half-inch homosote on top of that, and the L-girder was uh, a concept that I'd seen my stepfather use when he constructed his layouts many years ago. And uh, at the time I got started, it appeared to be what most people were doing, and it was very easy to do. It was very quick, and uh, it's just worked out very well, and I've been very pleased with how it turned out. Okay. Now, I know in the article it mentioned that you've done hand-laid track and built most of your turnouts. What drove you down that pathway versus buying flex track or, you know, ready-made turnouts? Well, there are some, some very, very beautiful products on the market these days that, that uh, folks can use. But back when I started my first layout in the, the mid-'80s, um, I was using Central Valley tie strips and code 83 rail for the main line. I was using Walter's code 83 turnouts for the main line and then uh, some other commercial turnouts for uh, some of the sidings and spurs, and I couldn't figure out a way to paint 
the ties and the rail to make it look really good. And in the few cases where I actually put some ballast down, it, it, it was uh, it kind of a painful process. So I, I, when I started the layout again, I actually tore out a, a section of the main that was uh, the Central Valley tie strips and I began to hand lay the track. And that really stemmed from Tony Custer's article in the late 80s on hand laying turnouts. When I first read that article, I was very impressed with it. I liked the way it looked. Um, it appeared as though there would be more control on the appearance um, by being able to put down ties and, and apply different colored stains and different colored ballasts and so forth. So I began using those methods to construct turnouts. I love the way they look. I love the way they operate. And uh, I've actually gone back now and replaced all but a handful of commercial turnouts that I've had on the layout with hand-laid turnouts. Okay. And, all right, you were doing this during the time before people like Fast Tracks came out, came out with all the jigs and the, the fixtures and the tooling, like for filing points and soldering. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Oh, it was, it was Stone Age construction. It was small files with duct tape for handles and using an old anvil to try to hold small rail. It, uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a challenge. If I had wow. to do all over again today, um, I'm torn as to whether I'd go with the beautiful commercial products that are available or whether I'd go back and uh, use some fast tracks jigs and, uh, and hand lay everything again. Okay. Now, you've got, is it code 83 all the way, or do you go step down to code 70 and code 55? The, the main line is all code 83, and uh, all of the sidings and spurs are code 70. Um, I have not used any code 55. Okay. Now, when you uh, put your ties down and you're using homosote there, uh, are you spiking them down? Are you using contact cement? How are you doing that? Uh, they've all been spiked. And um, I've had almost no problems over the years with any kind of uh, uh, shrinkage or expansion or, or the rails coming in and out of gauge. Everything has stayed very much uh, the way it was originally constructed, uh, you know, and that's probably in part because I've, I've got a basement that remains a fairly constant temperature and a fairly uh, level, uh, a fairly stable level of moisture. If I was in another environment, uh, it may not have worked out quite as well. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you deal with what you've got. I mean... We don't have basements here in the Phoenix area, <laughs> unless you live up toward the, the foothills up by Cave Creek and uh, Carefree in those areas. But that's some pretty expensive real estate up there. Um, so out here, it's just like California. They have the California basement, which is, you know, you leave the cars in the driveway <laughs> and uh, the, the layout is in the two-car garage. So well, when we bought, maybe it's why our divorce rate so high, too. <laughs> when we bought this house back in uh, uh, the early 90s, it, uh, my, my wife absolutely did not want the place, but the basement was just perfect. <laughs> the, uh, the school system is wonderful, and it's, it's a great neighborhood, but literally everything else in the house had to be redone. But, boy, it sure got a nice space. <laughs> See, that's a guy's perspective. Women just don't understand. They worry about bathrooms and kitchens. The guy's goes to the, to the meat of the matter. <laughs> Can I put a railroad in the basement? 
now I've I've noticed your scenery too. Somehow on your blog spot, I've noticed a lot of you know really dense forest and stuff there. Tell me about the the scenery. How'd you do the uh, the mountains? Did you make your own trees? Just give me a little insight on that. Sure. Um, the materials that I've used are, are all the standard products that you'd find from the highball ballast, uh, woodland sinks, ground foam. I've got some sulfur grass mats and some static grass and some super trees. There's really nothing unique about the materials that I've used. The uh, hard shell is simply gauze impregnated plaster strips on, um, or it's, sorry, plaster impregnated gauze strips um, mm-hmm. on top of cardboard, uh, a cardboard web, and then uh, that's painted, or actually I put a uh, plaster uh, coating over the top of that, and uh, then just painted. The trees are what people affectionately call, I think, the uh, puffballs, and <laughs> I first came across those or that method of construction back in the early 80s. There was a gentleman in Cincinnati, I believe, whose name was Bill Edwards, and he had an article in RMC on making the puffballs. And if I recall correctly, uh, he was actually taking white polyfiber and dyeing it black and spray painting it green and using that green paint as the adhesive to get the ground foam to stick to it. Um, in 1990, Don Kessler came out with an article, a beautiful article on his M&K Junction Railroad, and he described the method of using the polyfiber to make trees uh, in that article. So that kind of was another um, push toward using that technique. When I first started scenicing parts of the railroad I have now, um, I used some puffballs that I had on a previous layout, and over time, I really didn't like the appearance. They just were too round. They looked like round balls, and I thought there's got to be another way to do this. So okay. I started taking the polyfiber and pulling it into loose, long strips, just as you would if you were going to then put it in your hand and roll it into a ball. But rather than roll it into a ball, I just kind of bunched it together. And this left a pretty irregular looking shape. And I would then just make up a tray of those, grab them with long needle nose pliers, uh, spray some adhesive on them, and hold them in a can of ground foam, shake the ground foam around it so that it didn't compress uh, all of the polyfiber together and then pull it out and, and uh, let the glue dry. And that ended up giving me a lot of different shapes, uh, which I think has been more effective in conveying kind of a, uh, uh, a large uh, hillside uh, covered with uh, trees. Okay, yeah, especially for, like you say, coming down through Pennsylvania, West Virginia into uh, Virginia. I know I've invested a, a lot of times making wire armatures and then taking that, like, Micromark's polyfiber and stretching it out and gluing it on and so forth. And, you know, at the end of the day, what you've got uh, shown on your website just looks incredible. And so, you know, why make life more difficult than it is? If it works, it works. Right. Well, thank you. And it... it uh <clears throat> 
it's I've tried several different approaches, and I've actually used some of the super trees in the foreground in different areas um, to try to give it some variety. Uh, but it's it seems to have worked well so far. Okay. Now, are you uh, is your railroad DCC? It is. Um, I originally bought the Keller onboard system back in the mid '80s. And that was really my first experience with DCC. Um, when I started this layout, um, I had a few of their decoders left, and uh, eventually that company went out of business, and I was forced to get a new system. And about that time, um, CBP Products did their articles in Model Railroad or on actually constructing their system. So uh, I purchased all the components and um, built all of the various units, and uh, I think without fail, every one of them got shipped back to CVP for, to have something fixed. Um, electronics, or at least the construction of those uh, devices didn't seem to be my forte, but it's it's been a system that's worked just wonderfully ever since, and uh, I can't say enough good things about the guys at CVP and their, their customer service. Okay. Now, is it sound? Are you sound? Um, I've got 20 or so locomotives uh, on the layout right now that are lettered for the home road, and about half of those are sound. Uh, there's probably three or four that are just dummies, um, but I'm moving toward uh, having at least every consist have a sound unit in it because it just makes such such a substantial difference. Um, and once you've run a couple of locomotives with sound, the ones without it just don't sound right. Okay. Yeah, they have no sound. <laughs> That's right. Unless they're now. Unless they're one of the really old ones that I have, and and then <laughs> all you can hear is all the gears grinding. Yeah. Okay. I've got some uh, old model power E9s that uh, sound like uh, you're shaking gravel in a empty coffee can. <laughs> I'm familiar with that sound. <laughs> Uh, now, when I, how, how big is your locomotive fleet there? Um, I've got 20 on the layout right now. Okay. And to operate, um, as I intend at some point in the future, I probably need another 15 or 20 locomotives in total. All right. Now, let me ask, are they, uh, is that a mix of first and second generation or have you kind of standardized? It's all first and second generation, and, and anything that would have been on uh, a prototype up until, say, 1996 would be appropriate for the layout. That's kind of the, the cutoff time frame that I'm using. Uh, and in terms of the uh, manufacturers, it's it really got pretty much um, uh, everybody's product from Atlas to Athern, the, the Photo 2000, Stewart, Cato, uh, and a couple of uh, really, really old bathroom blue boxes that are uh, still in operation. No kidding. Okay. Uh, well, that uh, I was going to ask you, do you, are any of your locomotives still from like your original 1970s set? Sounds like maybe. Uh, yeah. I've actually got a, an SW1200 that has been repainted, repowered, uh, re-geared. It's now permanently coupled to another SW1200 that's got a uh, Soundtracks 567 decoder in it, 
So there are actually a couple that are left from a long time ago. Yeah, I've still got the very first set of uh, Alco uh, PA, PB, PA that I bought back in 1972, Aethern Blue Boxes. But like you, I've repowdered them and redetailed them. But, you know, the new stuff still runs so much better. And, of course, the current drawing stuff's a lot better on the new stuff. So they're uh, they're now scenery units. Uh, okay, and I can tell by the photos that you go in, you do a super detailed job. I see windshield wipers on locomotives and stuff like that. Yes, it, it, that's something that I started many, many years ago. And the goal was to make them look as realistic as possible and, uh, in the early 80s, that meant uh, a significant amount of kit bashing and, and uh, additional detailing that was required. And as you said a few minutes ago, the products that are on the market today are, are just phenomenal in terms of the detail and uh, everything that's uh, applied to them. Um, but for a long period of time, there was, uh, there was a lot of additional detail that, that I had to add in order to get the appearance that I wanted. But uh, fortunately today, with uh, the products that are on the market, it saves us quite a bit of time. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. How do you do your weathering? What, uh, what process do you like? Originally, I used airbrush weathering almost exclusively, and um, that's really developed over the years. And I'd start with the, uh, the base color and... Uh, uh, then decal the locomotives and would come back with uh, a very light coat of the base color over the lettering to help fade it just a bit and then would add some grime to it, uh, do the old trick of spraying across the top of the locomotives with grime to make it appear as though the tops were lighter as a result of direct sunlight. And, uh, and more recently I've, I've gone a little bit further and I'm beginning to add some washes of uh, acrylics in various colors to help bring out details. And um, the, uh, the acrylic washes uh, are just really effective in helping to make the details pop on uh, just about anything. So it, over time, it's, uh, the weathering techniques have changed a bit, and uh, I've tried to adapt. Okay. Now, so... If you're a coal hauler and you're up through the 90s, so do you have a mix like when, one, do you have any manifest freights or is everything pretty much coal movements on your railroad? Well, the layout can accommodate about 70 to 75 hoppers at uh, online locations, including uh, some tipple, tipples, a prep plant, uh, and some, uh, some branch line staging. Um, so obviously there's a preponderance of, uh, of the hopper cars on the layout, but, um, operations will include a couple of locals, uh, a couple of manifest freights and uh, maybe a high priority freight or two. Okay. So you mentioned early nineties. So that means that you probably have some, uh, like core coal porters, that type of high capacity, uh, rapid load, unload coal gons on there too? Actually, I may have misspoken. The, the cutoff date is 1976. Oh, okay. I thought I heard you say on locomotive-wise it was up through the 90s. No, no. Everything, anything, and I may have said 96, but I should have said 76. It's oh, okay. All right. Uh, all right. 
Because I remember when I was at ACF, we didn't start doing the uh, the first, you know, high-sided coal guns until the uh, very late 70s when that development and prototyping was being done. Okay, so you're probably traditional three and four bay, 70, 100 ton, just traditional coal hoppers. Exactly. You know, still is... Uh still a few 55-ton two bays. Um, you know, when you look at photos of the Chesapeake and Ohio and the LNN and the Clinchfield back in that time frame, you can see that there were still a few of those cars around as well. But um, the Cold Porters and some of the neater high-capacity cars that, that came along later um, are just a little bit too new to, to be included on the layout. Okay. Now, when people look at your blog spot, they see some really interesting structures. You've done some uh, real good uh, kid building, kid bashing. Uh, there's great looking bridges on there. Uh, what was the influence on all the uh, the structures that you picked? Was it a prototype railroad, you know, coal railroad that led you down those choices? It was actually a couple of uh, a couple of coal hauling railroads, primarily the Chesapeake and Ohio, but to a lesser extent, the Virginian and the L&N. And um, interestingly, the first structure that I made uh, was a, a scratch build of a uh, Detroit, Toledo, and Ironton small town station. And uh, I subsequently scratch built a couple more copies of that to use on the layout. And then uh, subsequently, I scratch built three um, copies of the uh, CNO cabin, as they call them, at Quinamont. Actually, it was at Prince, West Virginia. And uh, and from there, I, I pretty much scratch-built most of what you see in the pictures. Um, there are a couple of kit bashes, but um, I've always wanted to have something that was a little unique, which may have led me to do more um, scratch-building than, than others might. Uh, and then I always I wanted to maintain a, a feel kind of a flavor of what you what you would encounter if you were in West Virginia somewhere or in Virginia actually along a coal hauling railroad and that's what led to uh, the design and construction of the structures that you see. Okay and again I compliment you on the uh, the weathering and so forth of them. Uh, the the big uh, trestles and stuff they look like uh, possibly micro engineering uh, kits is that what they are? They are yes the um, there's a very long microengineering trestle uh, that you can see in some of the shots on the MRH website um, of the company houses. And um, there are a couple of other bridges that were built out of uh, the Central Valley uh, box girder parts, which are just absolutely wonderful for um, kit bashing uh, various bridge structures. Okay. Well, it's all executed very well. Now, I know you, in your summary to me, you'd mentioned that, what, you've got about 60% of the scenery done? Correct. Um, okay. All of, just about all of the hard shell is finished, with the exception of one small area, and about 60% of the scenery is complete. Okay. Now, do you have a timetable for having a completed layout, or is it just you're enjoying it as you go, and when you get there, you get there? You know, I've enjoyed this hobby immensely for a long, long time, and the goal has always been to have a fully scenic operating model railroad. And uh, uh, my, my wife 
kids me that it's never going to be finished, and she very well may be right, but um, it's it's been a tremendous amount of fun. And my my goal for the coming year is really to begin operations. I've I've never participated uh, in an operating session, although the railroad has been designed for that, all the way down to car cards and waybills and card boxes and and even a train industry and blocking system um, program that uh, was developed by the Midwest Modelers many years ago. But mm-hmm. I just I haven't gotten that far yet, but. Uh, one of my goals for the next year is to begin operating on a limited basis. Um, will it ever be finished? Who knows? Okay. Now, do you have a group of friends then that will come over and operate with you? I don't, Paul. Um, up until about six months ago, I've been uh, probably the poster child for lone wolf modeling um, just because it's it's been my way of, of getting away from everything. and. Having been involved in sales for many years, it was nice to be able to come home and, and uh, check out and get away from all of that. But with, um, with some of the postings that I've done on MRH and uh, you know, the good group of people that are involved in the forum there, um, it's became, become very obvious to me that uh, uh, there's a lot more enjoyment that can be had by hooking up and connecting with folks who have a similar interest to mine. Okay. Uh, and I'm like you. I've probably never had help in, on the uh, the railroad and so forth because it was just my world. And uh, the most I had a guy help me haul lumber because none of our vehicles would do that. So, but you're right. I got involved with a uh, a group, uh, the hobby shop that I go to. There was a museum just north of Phoenix, and it had a quite what I consider quite large layout that this gentleman had built over 20 years. So there's a good parallel to you there. And he had actually finished it. Oh, wow. And immaculately detailed. And he got to the age where he said, I can't maintain this. Uh, He had an operating group. He said, nobody has expressed interest. So Bob, the guy that owns the hobby shop, Went to see him, looked at the layout, and said, well, I'll buy it. And so they went out there to dismantle it, took a professional moving company to get this thing out of the display building. Oh, my gosh. And fortunately, Bob's, uh, the where his hobby shop is, is one of those, you know, prefabricated concrete commercial buildings with huge garage doors in the back. And so there's been six of us working every Friday night reconstructing this model railroad. And I mean, it's, I guess, it's, you would cram it into an oversized three-car garage. I mean, the, the railroad is probably 25 by 50 or 60, and there's a big center peninsula. Oh, my gosh. It's all hand-laid Code 70 track, DCC, hand-built, you know, in-place switches, and just, it's hard shell, like where now you use hydrocal, this thing is hard shell. But we can see enough of this thing as we've been, you know, getting the track realigned. I've been building the pony walls so that we can put up, you know, protective uh, glass and stuff so nobody can just reach in and grab it and stuff. But I go, wow, this is what a, a complete layout looks like. And then 
the guy gave Bob all the, the photos of the 20-year progress. And so when I read about your 20-year uh, endeavor there, I thought, boy, this is a parallel. I need to talk to Tom. <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is cool. I know that my railroad will not be complete. I just, I don't care that it is. But I like to get portions of it done to where I can take photographs and, and shoot movies of it. So that to me is a major victory. Well, Tom, what you've done is just very, very impressive. What do you got planned for the future? Like you say, just keep working on it and get into operations? Um, yes, that's that's pretty much the plan for now. Uh, where this all ends up someday, who knows? Um, I have started collecting some uh, some CNO steam air equipment, and um, I've got a got an interest clearly in that period and in that railroad. And uh, at some point, maybe I head in a completely different direction. It seems as though uh, <laughs> there have been a number of people in in this hobby that have built very large uh, layouts over time, and then at some point, completely tore them apart and started over. So I don't know. That uh, that may happen here too at some point, but for now it's uh, it's just it's a lot of fun to work on the layout. Um, it's a great place to go to get away from everything else, and and in the last six months or so, it's become something that uh, is a lot of fun to share with other people. So I, I think I'll continue to do uh, a lot more of that over time. Okay, well, Tom, I appreciate your sharing this story with us today. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I know our listeners will. Uh, do you have any other articles coming up? Um, I've written two more articles, and um, uh, I believe they may be published at some time uh, during the coming year. Um, one is on construction of a uh, diesel fuel tank, and then the other is uh, on the construction of a uh, out-of-service um, train order signal. Um, but uh, but that's it for right now. Okay. Well, I'll look forward to those. Yeah. Well, want our listeners to uh, stay tuned. There will be further uh, podcasts coming on iTunes for Model Railroad uh, Hobbyist Magazine, and we've enjoyed being with you today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the time. <laughs>